Today's episode is sponsored by Politics and War, the online political strategy game where you get to create your own country and compete with thousands of other players diplomatically, militarily, and economically. Politics and War is free to play with limited microtransactions to ensure the game is fair and not pay to win. Play for free in your browser at politicsandwar.com where you can download the Politics and War app at the App Store or in the Google Play Store, whichever one you prefer. All right, let's take a moment to tell you about my favorite product and the company that produces them. Yes, I'm talking about Fable Beard Company, the official products, or beard products at least, of the American History Podcast. It's the best time of the year, the holiday season. And when it comes to scents, no one, and I mean no one, outdoes Fable Beard Company. Christmas time means limited edition holiday scents, and they have a totally awesome lineup for you this year. These include the Gingerbread Man, my favorite, or one of my favorites, Jack Frost, The Claws, another great one, The Ugly Sweater Guy, and new this year, The Caroler. I mean, is it really Christmas time without Christmas carols? This product has a fantastic scent profile. It's the perfect blend of cinnamon bread pudding, sprinkled nutmeg, iced frosting, and... uh, Let me start that last part again there, Chris. Iced frosting... God damn it. Iced frosting and fresh raisins. It comes in an oil, beard butter, and beard co-wash. You really need to check these scents out before they disappear. And they do disappear. Remember, Fable also has some amazing full-spectrum CBD beard products, including one of my all-time favorites, the Baker. This comes in beard oil, butter, and even co-wash. Each product comes with full-spectrum cannabinoids to help with hair growth and strength. Each item contains 50 milligrams of CO2 expressed full-spectrum oil. I can tell you from personal experience, my beard has never been softer. This one has a scent profile of fresh... Oh, damn it. Let me start that sentence again. This one has a scent profile of fresh baked pastry, warm vanilla sugar, and just a hint of cinnamon spice. Head over to fablebeardcompany.com and load up on the perfect gift for the beard man in your life. And, as always... Remember to use coupon code SEAN15 for 15% off each and every order. I know you're going to love these products just as much as I do. Okay, let's get back to the program. The American History Podcast, Season 4, Episode 11, The Road to War, Part 2. Welcome back. Last time we spoke about some of the attempts made after World War I to keep the peace. These attempts included the Washington Naval Conference and the Five Power Treaty. Now in the end, I think one could make the argument that these attempts were not meant so much to keep the peace, but to break the Anglo-Japanese alliance in the Pacific region and allow the United States to become the hegemon out in that area. But I'll let you decide that for yourself. In any event, as we know, These efforts in the Pacific ramped up the anger that was felt by the Japanese 
and had grave consequences going forward. Now with that said, let's jump back into our time machine. To help us do that, we have the song of the week. This week, it's Take Me Out to the Ball Game by the Hayden Quartet. It comes to us courtesy of the Free Music Archive, and I hope you enjoy it. We'll see you in just a moment. myths of the 1930s is the idea that the American people were isolationist. If you've listened to this show, I'm sure you've heard me say it, oh, probably a million times or so, but it's totally wrong. Instead, Americans were more what I would call non-interventionist. Now, they were not concerned with trying to police the world. Doing so in their minds was pointless and would simply lead only to disaster. Now, one of the mainstream arguments that you'll hear goes something like this. Occupied by the Great Depression, Americans sought to avoid involvement in an increasingly dangerous Europe. Further, most Americans were not alarmed by the rise of totalitarian regimes in places like Germany or Japan. To some extent, that is true. But the part where these folks were propagating this mainstream um, argument get it wrong is when they try and place the blame on the Depression. In the aftermath of World War I, as we've discussed before, Americans abandoned their interventionist foreign policy that they had adopted under President Woodrow Wilson as well as the imperialists of the late 19th and early 20th century. People like President Theodore Roosevelt and others, they thought it was America's duty to take her place on the world stage. By that, they meant to follow in the footsteps of the British and create an overseas empire. As a matter of fact, as I said way back in season three, when you take a U.S. history course, usually sometime early in the second semester, you're going to get to a point where the professor talks about the imperial moment as if it lasted for 10 seconds and then went away. Nothing could be further from the truth. Anyway, what happened is that the United States abandoned, for a moment, this new imperialist interventionist foreign policy and returned to what had been the traditional American belief, free commerce with all nations 
entangling alliances with none. As John Quincy Adams once said, the United States does not go abroad in search of monsters to destroy. She is the well-wisher to the freedom and independence of all. She is the champion of her own cause, and I'm paraphrasing that, but I think it's great advice. If the last three decades or so has taught us nothing, I think it at least has taught us that we should take care of our own backyard. But I digress. Now, there were, without a doubt, a large number of Americans who wanted the United States, after the experience of World War I, to stay out of European affairs. In their mind, um, they thought we should just mind our own business. Thus, you get something called the Ludlow Amendment. This was introduced several times between 1935 and 1940. And it's a constitutional, or it was a constitutional amendment, that forbid a declaration of war by Congress, except in the case of invasion, unless there was first a favorable public referendum. Now, it never passed, but it certainly reflected Americans' desire to avoid a repeat of its experience in World War I. Remember, over 100,000 Americans were killed in the fighting in that war in less than one year of action. The total number is something like 300,000 dead and wounded during that time. If you extrapolate that out to four years, it would have easily been the bloodiest conflict in American history, with over a million casualties. And so this brings us to the London Economic Conference of 1933. This event was tended by representatives of 66 different nations. The purpose, as you will read in your standard text, is that it was to confront the global depression by stabilizing national currencies and reviving international trade. Now allow me to offer up a slightly different take on this. And it's a bit of a digression, but by now, you know me, I can't help myself. Throughout the 1920s, to repair the damages the Great War had done to the liberal international economic order, huge strides were made um, to normalize the exchange rates between currencies, capital markets, and even normalized trade. Accomplishments were made by nations such as England, Belgium, Sweden, and even Japan, as all of them restored the gold standard. Now, you may not know it, but the United States had remained on the gold standard, even though the Federal Reserve inflated the money supply during the war through the creation of more banknotes and what is termed checkbook money. Now, if you want more on that issue, you can read David Stockman's recent work, The Great Deformation, The Corruption of Capitalism in America. Um, it's a great book, and I highly recommend it. However, what progress had been made in the 1920s was endangered by the abandonment of the gold exchange by England. Now, strangely, England had spent the previous decade promoting the gold standard under the authority of the League of Nations. So much for that, huh? This, okay, this itself meant that the prospect for the resumption of the stable international order which had existed prior to the decision by the European powers to kill the goose that laid the golden egg, so to speak, were dim. Now this, then, was the context for Franklin Roosevelt to step up and, in the words of historians, deliver the coup de grace when he delivered a stunning message to the conference that summer. Against the advice of his own advisors, all of whom argued against the position he took, FDR instead decided to torpedo the negotiations. Instead of a return to stability, high tariffs and government-subsidized trade would now be the rule of the day. Rather than a return to the former order, the world would instead see government-dominated recover and rearmament programs, the manipulation of fiat currencies, and the creation of government debt for the foreseeable future. Now, Some people argue, as does David Stockman, that only the outbreak of war in 1939 pulled the world out of the rut of economic nationalism and stagnation that was caused by the Great Depression and the actions of Roosevelt and the English in 1933. 
However, there are others, such as economic historian Robert Higgs, who argue that the war simply covered up the underlying issues. Like steroids, the war made it appear that the economy was stronger than it really was. Either way, the reality is to call the United States, even in 1933, isolationist is just a misuse of that term. So the conference failed to achieve its goals. FDR had successfully undermined the gold standard as the last thing he wanted was a return to the stabilization and fiscal responsibility the gold standard demands. Instead, he preferred to use the taxation, spending, and money printing powers of the state to allow him to achieve his political goals. And the strange thing about this? Even the mainstream historians agree with me on all of this. This leads us to the Nye Committee, led by North Dakota Senator Gerald P. Nye. Many believe that the United States had entered, or believed, the United States had entered World War I not for the purpose stated by Wilson, but to increase the profits for American munitions makers. The Nye Committee investigated this issue and confirmed this was indeed the case. Thus, you get munitions manufacturers dubbed merchants of death. The committee claimed bankers wanted the war to protect their loans to Europe and that President Wilson had provoked Germany by allowing American ships to sail into a war zone in the Atlantic. The result of this was the Neutrality Acts. They were passed between 1935 and 1937. Now let me say that some today believe the committee was flawed and excessively anti-business. I'm not so sure I believe that, um, criticism at least to be correct. Instead, I think the real issue for some is that the committee confirmed something awful about a president that is still often cited as one of the best. He is currently ranked 13th by at least one poll, and at the end of the day, his foreign policy, called Wilsonianism, is pretty much the blueprint for American foreign policy today. Now having said that, let's discuss the Neutrality Acts. They said that when the president proclaimed the existence of a foreign war, certain restrictions were to go into effect. First, the United States could not sail arms to any of the combatant nations. Second, loans and credit to these countries were prohibited. Third, Americans were forbidden from traveling on vessels of any of the nations of that war, in contrast to what had happened in World War I, for example. Fourth, non-military goods must be purchased on a cash-and-carry basis. In other words, payment was due at the time the goods were picked up. Today's show is sponsored by Unidragon. Everyone has faced the problem. What gift to choose? What to give yourself when you sit at home? What to give a friend or parents? What should you give your wife or husband? What to give to your children or a colleague at work? Unipuzzles by Unidragon solves this problem. Why do people love Unidragon puzzles? Each puzzle piece has its own unique shape. They're interesting for both adults and children. Each puzzle is packed in a premium wooden gift box. New puzzles are released every month and they have an incredibly colorful design. My favorite is the Mandala Inexhaustible Abundance Puzzle. It's more than a puzzle. It's a piece of art. I've never seen anything like this. If you're looking for a gift that is memorable and you're tired of just giving out gift cards or the same old, same old, this is for you. Head over to unidragon.com right now and check out the Mandala or any of their other amazing puzzles. Use coupon code HISTORY10 and you'll get 10% off your first order. That's right. 10% off the most unique and amazing gift you've ever purchased. Just use History 10 and get that great gift today. Today's show is sponsored by King of the World. This is a seven-part podcast series about a Pakistani-American Muslim teenager who comes of age post-9-11 and, 20 years later, tries to figure out what the heck happened to him 
and us. King of the World is a narrative, non-fiction podcast that covers topics like identity, belonging, addiction, patriotism, discrimination, racism, punk rock, history, Islam, Muslims, 9-11, spying, and so much more. I know this is going to be your new favorite podcast. Check out King of the World on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts from. Okay, let's get back to the show. This episode is sponsored by Beacon, the navigation sharing app that allows you to share your ETA and arrival with one or more people while keeping your location private. Have you ever had to answer the question, when you're going to be home, only to say, uh, soon? I know I have, and this app will help you answer that question in a way that's far better. Beacon is easy to use. Just drop a beacon on the map, share it, and hit start. The ETA updates as conditions and routes change. Beacons are saved on the map and can easily be reused. As people arrive at the beacon, all of you get notified. This is great for, say, meeting several people at the cinema or a sporting event, or even maybe a meetup at a restaurant. No more answering, hey, are you on the way yet? Go to www.beacon.site to learn more and install the app. Okay, let's get back to the show. Finally, the laws banned the United States from becoming involved in the Spanish Civil War. Now, some argue that these laws limited the president in a crisis. My question is how? If, say, I don't know, Russia goes to war with Mongolia, how does this limit the ability to act or his ability to act? But even more importantly, why should, we, why should he act? This is something those critics assume is a given. If China and Taiwan go to war, they assume the United States must act. But my question is why? Another argument is that the laws ignored the issue of who was the aggressor and who was the victim, thus preventing the United States from aiding traditional allies. But again, why does that matter? Traditional allies in the 1930s meant England and France, with whom we had allied ourselves in World War I. So traditional only went back two decades at that point. The reality was that traditionally, the United States did not involve itself in the European great game and was probably better off for it. I know I've titled this season The War in the Pacific, but we will talk a little bit about Europe in this episode. I mean, it's kind of hard not to. The major issue for the imperialists was that in the late 1930s, you had a series of military conflicts in Europe and Asia, and the United States was banned from getting involved. They argue that had the United States been able to involve itself, then things might have turned out differently. The reality is we don't know that. What we do know is that FDR's choice... Um, in, the 19, in 1933 to torpedo the London Economic Conference, led to some of these problems, if not most of them. So let's look at what was going on. First, we had the Spanish Civil War. The traditional narrative states that the nationalists, led by fascist Francisco Franco, fought the democratic loyalists for control of Spain. Note the terminology here. Franco is always referred to as a fascist, which he was, no doubt. But how about these so-called Democrats? What were they? They were, without a doubt, communists, although there was an alliance between those who wanted democratic society and communists, along with the syndicalist anarchists. Remember, Hitler and Mussolini supported the nationalists, and Soviet Russia supported the republicans. I know I'm simplifying a very complicated part of Spanish history, but it was basically a right versus left war. Franco was attempting to restore the power of the church and to destroy communism in Spain, much as we saw Chiang Kai-shek try to destroy communism in China in the late 1920s. He had seen what Mussolini had done in Italy, and he wanted to replicate that in Spain. Congress, encouraged by FDR, amended the Neutrality Acts 
to apply an arms embargo to both sides. The international implication, so argue the interventionists, is that the democracies of the world stood by as Spanish democracy was destroyed by fascist agitators. Often, and I've seen this, professors or history teachers will focus on the fact that Hitler and Mussolini both aided the fascist uh, Franco's forces, but they ignore the fact that the Republicans were being aided by Stalinist Russia. In the end, yes, the fascists won. Then, as we saw a couple of episodes ago, Japan ended up attacking China in 1937. This represented an end to the open door in China. Eventually, Japan also extended her empire to include French Indochina and the Dutch East Indies. Now, speaking of Japan, something I left off in episode 8, purposely I might add, was the Panay incident. In December 1937, Japan bombed and sank a U.S. gunboat, the Panay, or Panay, however you say it, and three standard oil tankers on the Yangtze River. Two Americans were killed and 30 were wounded. Based on the open door policy, the Yangtze was, by treaty, an international waterway. Japan was testing the resolve of the United States. FDR, who was angered by this, and probably fueled by his racist feelings about the Japanese, wanted to seize and protect territory in China in a move to stall the conquest by Japan. Well, that was his thinking, at least. In the end, Japan apologized and paid the United States an indemnity, as well as promised no further attacks. In the United States, the public called for the president to withdraw all American forces from China. Most Americans were not only satisfied by Japan's apology, but they were relieved. The last thing they wanted was to go to war in Asia. The imperialist camp argues that Japan interpreted the tone of the Americans as weak, and thus they believed they could vent their anger against American civilians in China and have no fear of retribution. I wonder if the Japanese would have cared one way or the other. But anyways, this led to FDR's quarantine speech. He condemned both Japan and Italy for their aggression, and he urged the democratic countries of the world to quarantine aggressors via economic embargoes. The speech was heavily criticized by the anti-interventionist camp, who believed this might be the first step towards war. And this was with good reason. Remember, Wilson had begun this way and ended up getting the United States involved in World War I. So there was a precedent. All right, so we're going to end this episode here. Next time, we wrap up our Road to War miniseries within, a se within Season 4 by looking at Germany and taking the narrative up to the eve of Pearl Harbor. If you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and give us a five-star review. Those really do help the show, or at least just give us five stars and click submit. You don't have to do the full review if you don't have the time. Um, if you'd like to assist in helping us to keep the lights on, please shop with our sponsors and be sure to use the coupon code. You can also join the Patreon, and for as little as $10 a month, you'll get access to two bonus series, 1983, The Year the World Almost Ended, and Quagmire in the Middle East. Until next time, I'm Sean, and you've been listening to Episode 11, The Road to War, Part 2. Have a great day.